this morning. Um, Evan, if you want to come up and get yourself settled here. I have the privilege of introducing you to Evan Owens here. He is the associate pastor over at the Journey in Lebanon. And for those of you that uh, have not been with us long or long enough to know that um, our church started out of their church body. Um, so it was, uh, there was a journey in Lebanon, and it's no consequence that, or coincidence that our name's the same. <laughs> and that, so uh, we were actually planted out of that campus. They had, uh, we had done a multi-site thing for a little while and then just realized that it's just the right thing to go plant this church and have things be autonomous and on our own and all that. So uh, we've got great respect and, and that for the leadership over there. And Evan's been over there with him two years here. He's the associate pastor. So if any of you know Eric Reed, uh, this is the poor guy that has to try to keep him in line. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're blessed to have him, and this is his first time here, and we're yeah. excited to have you preach. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, as he said, I'm one of the associate pastors uh, in Lebanon, and we are so excited about what God is doing uh, there at TJC. And uh, I do part of, I do some of our preaching and teaching and and wear many different hats as uh, comes along with ministry most of the time. And one of those hats is trying to keep Eric straight most of the time. Um, but we, we enjoy what we do, and we're so excited about what God is doing uh, in our area, including what God is doing here uh, in Hartsville as well. So it's nice to be here. Um, I was not uh, at TJC at Lebanon um, when they planted here and all those things, but I've heard uh, a lot about it, and so it is good to be here with you this morning. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going to get there in just a moment, um, but I want to uh, just kind of go a place this morning that a story that may not be very familiar to you, um, but I think one that is very relevant for the culture that we live in today. You may have heard it said that we live in kind of a post truth post-facts culture. Uh, and if you kind of wonder what I mean by that, uh, we live in a culture where truth is really under fire, right? We, we don't really believe, most people don't believe that there is such thing as truth anymore. Now, we as evangelical Christians, by, by the large percentage, about 90%, over 90% of us, still believe that there is such thing as absolute truth. But the further you get away from evangelical Christianity, including even some mainline uh, Christians and, and then even more further away from Christianity, the less and less you see people say they believe in absolute truth. And when people with no religious beliefs at all, it's less than 40% uh, percent believe that there is such thing as absolute truth. And, and so you may hear people make statements in our world like, well, I'm just trying to live my truth, or he's just living his truth. And so we put pronouns, we put these modifiers in front of the word truth. And 50, 100 years ago, that would have seemed preposterous. It would have been unbelievable that we could put those types of words in front of the word truth. My truth. Well, that's just her truth. That's that's his truth. And what's true for you may not be true for me. These are all different statements that you may hear. And, and we're a little bit isolated from that in the Bible Belt uh, in, in, in the South. Just a little bit. Maybe not as much. Um, we don't see that as much here. But it's, it's all around us. And you'll see it on TV. You hear it on the news, right? We don't even know if the news is true uh, anymore. Right? It's all so slanted. It's all so biased. Whichever way, whichever channel you're watching, right, you're getting a slant in a different direction. 
And so this idea of truth is one that is under fire in our culture. But the funny thing about truth is that it's true whether anybody believes it or not. See, that's, that's the, the very reality of truth, that whether anybody believes it or not, it's true. And we can spend all day and we can bemoan the fact and the direction of our country and our culture and all those types of things, right? We, we know things are not the way they used to be. And I think too often as Christians, we spend a little bit too much time thinking about how things are not the way they used to be. The reality is they're not the way they used to be. And so as Christians, we've got to ask ourselves, how then do we live in this culture that is not like it used to be? How do we live in this culture where truth is under fire. Things are not the way they used to be, but we've got to live in this culture like that. So what we've got to do is ask ourselves, as followers of Christ, as people who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the way, the truth, and the life, what does that mean for us in today's culture? What does that mean for us in today's America? Well, as the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We think this is a new problem, but it's a problem that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Truth has been under fire since the beginning of mankind. As the serpent sneaks into the garden and he distorts God's truth to Adam and Eve, and we see the fall of man. So it's not a new problem, but a war that's been waged since the foundations of the earth. We have a very real adversary who wants to deceive us, just as he did Eve in the garden on that day. An enemy who wants to twist and distort God's truth and cause us to doubt our Father. And so the main thing I want you to walk away with today is this statement. We must identify what God says is true and choose to walk in it. We must identify what God says is true and choose to walk in it. So I want to take a look at this story uh, this morning. Maybe not too familiar to you, but it's a really, really interesting story and and a beautiful picture of what it means to identify what God says is true and then also to choose to walk in it. So 1 Kings chapter 13, we're going to begin there in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole story, and then we'll just kind of break it down. So bear with me here. We've got uh, about 24 verses to cover. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord, to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man, Come home with me, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go with it. Go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. 
For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may drink, eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so he went back with him, and he ate bread in his house, and he drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. Let's pray together. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, may it fall fresh on our hearts. God, may its truth change the way we live, change the way we see you, change the way we trust you. God, may we know that your word is true, that you have revealed yourself to us. You're not a mystery, you're not far off, but you are near. We can know you and we can follow you. God, give us the courage to do that. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Amen. So we see in this story there's a lot of different things going on, but before we kind of get break down this story, let me give you a little bit of background of where we're at kind of in history uh, at this moment. Uh, so the, the kingdom of Israel, uh, just before this story happens, has split into the northern and the southern kingdom. So you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, comprised of about 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Now Judah included the city of Jerusalem. So this is where obviously the Jews would go to worship in the temple. And so here in First uh, Kings chapter 13, we find the king Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. And so his kingdom does not include the city of Jerusalem. So if you read 1 Kings 10, 11, 12, what you'll see is that Jeroboam takes it upon himself to set up some new places of worship. And so he sets up some new altars, and he fashions a couple of golden calves, saying, hey, th I think this is a good idea. We should set up these places of worship and allow the people of the northern kingdom to go and worship here so that they don't have to travel to Jerusalem. What he was really scared of is that if people traveled to Jerusalem, they would begin to sympathize with the southern kingdom, and they would want to join them and not be a part of the northern kingdom anymore. If you look at the, the record of the kings, you don't find a good king from the north. 
good kings did not come from the northern kingdom of Israel. The only good kings we see come from the southern tribe of Judah. And so Jeroboam says, let's set up these altars and, and let's make these golden calves and we'll just let the people worship here so that they don't have to go to Jerusalem. And so this is where we get to this story. Uh, he's set up this system so that they don't have to go back. And this is where we pick up the story as God begins to send a prophet to the north. So he sends a prophet from Judah to the north, to Bethel, to the king Jeroboam to deliver a message from God. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 1. The prophet gets there, he gets to the altar, he finds the king, and he begins to tell this message to the king. And what does he tell him? He says, king, on this altar, come one day there are going to be priests, there are going to be human bones sacrificed on this altar. What he's essentially saying to the king is that one day this altar will be desecrated. And, and, and it will just be completely ruined, and it will no longer be an object of worship. He says uh, King Josiah will do that. And if you read further on in Scripture, in Second Kings, you'll see that this indeed does happen. King Josiah uh, burns human remains on the altar, completely desecrates it, completely uh, ruins it. And so this prophet, this man of God, this is how we're going to refer to him throughout this story. We never hear his name. He's just a man of God from Judah sent to uh, send this message to Jeroboam. And so he goes, he says, here's what's going to happen on this altar. You don't need to make sacrifices on it anymore. This is not right. This is not what you should be doing. And so he delivers this message to the king. And what does the king do? The king doesn't like it very much. The king doesn't like the message. And so he tries to stretch out his hand and he tells his people to go and arrest him. He says, seize him. So Jeroboam says, get, get rid of this man of God. I don't want to hear this message that he's trying to tell me. And what happens as he does that? His hand is, is withered. His hand is stuck. And so you can imagine him pointing at this prophet. And when he tries to draw his hand back in, he can't move it. He can't move his hand. God just strikes him, paralyzes him in that moment. And he can't move his hand. His hand withers up. And so we see what's happening here. He's heard this message from God, but he denies it. How often do we do this in our own life? We know what's true. We know what we're supposed to do, but we just decide, it doesn't sound too good to me. I don't want to do that. It's a, it's a lot more convenient for us to sacrifice on these altars. And so I know maybe what I'm doing is wrong. This is what the king's thinking. What I'm doing is wrong, but I don't want to hear it. And who are you to come up here and tell me what I should and should not be doing? And so often in our lives, we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't have the courage and we don't have the strength to actually walk in it, to actually live in it. And so we just deny it. And we're the world's best at justifying our own actions. We're the world's best at justifying our own sin. We can come up with, own, with any reason in our mind to make it sound like what we're doing is okay. That's what the king's doing. He's doing the same thing. He says, this, this, this doesn't matter. You know, get him out of here. Seize him. And so the man of God has delivered this message. He said, you know, this altar is going to be desecrated. There's going to be human bones uh, burned upon it. And he says, it's also going to come down. It's going to be torn down. This is the sign that's going to be given to you today uh, to tell you that this prophecy that I'm telling you is true. So the king reaches out his hand, his hand is, is seized up, and as he does that, what happens? The altar falls. 
The altar falls down just as the man of God had proclaimed what happened, and ashes begin to spill out. And so the king, Jeroboam, has heard this truth, and now it's been proven to him that it's true because this altar has fallen down and these ashes have spilled out. Everything has happened just as the man of God had said would happen. And so as he stretches out his hand and it's withered up, he's paralyzed. He finally realizes, oh, wait, I need to be listening to what this guy says. I need to be heeding to God's word. And so what does he do in that moment? He says, okay, please ask God to restore my hand to me. And the man of God is gracious enough to entreat God's favor, and and God restores his hand to Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam is able to draw back his hand, and he has use of it again. But God has proven himself to be true in this moment to the king and to this man of God. So the king now feels indebted to this man of God. So what does he do? He invites him to come into his home and and eat and drink. It's been a long journey from Judah. Surely you need some refreshment. Come into my home. Have some of my bread. Drink some of my water before you turn around and go back home. And what does the man of God say? He says, I can't do it. God has told me to not eat or drink here. And he's also told me not to return home the same way that I came. So take a different road home. He says, this is what God has told me to do, and I cannot disobey him. So he saddles his donkey, and he begins to head back home to Judah on a different path from which he came. And so in that moment, right, this man of God has done exactly what he was supposed to do. He knows what God has told him to do. He knows what the truth is, and he had the courage to walk in it. He stood up to the king. I imagine that wasn't a very easy moment. You're standing in front of a king. And he's inviting you into his home. But this man had the courage and the boldness enough to say, you know what, God told me I'm not supposed to do it, so I'm going to turn around and I'm going to head back home. Because he was obeying God. He knew what God had told him to do. And so if the story ended there, it would be pretty good. And he would have accomplished his mission. He could have washed his hands and gone back home to Judah. But that's not where the story ends. In fact, it takes quite a bad turn here for this man of God. We're introduced to a third character, right? We're introduced to this man called the Old Prophet, another man here that we don't have a name for. I don't know why we don't have names for any of these people outside of the king, um, but we're just going to call him the Old Prophet because that's what Scripture calls him. So we've got King Jeroboam, we've got the man of God, and then we've got the Old Prophet. We're kind of done with the king for now, so let's talk about the man of God and the Old Prophet. So the Old Prophet was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. He's not being used by God anymore. Um, But he hears what this man of God has come to do in his land. He hears about what this man of God has delivered uh, to the king and the message that he's delivered to the king. And so he says, yeah, I'd like to have a chat with with this man. He seems to know what he's doing. God seems to be using him. God's not using me anymore. I want to sit down and I want to talk with him. And so his son's bringing back word about what's happened with the king. And so he says, go and find him. I want to find him, and I want to talk to him. And so he saddles up the donkey, the old prophet does, and he goes to find this man of God on his way home, and he finds him sitting under an oak tree. And they have a conversation back and forth. Are you the man of God that come from Judah? Yeah, I am. Uh, Did you do this with the king? Yeah, I did. And, And so this conversation goes back and forth, and what happens? The old prophet then invites this man of God into his home. He says, it's a long journey home. Why don't you come, have some bread, have some water. Come relax with me in my home. 
So the same offer that the king made to this man of God, the old prophet now makes to the man of God. And at first the man of God says, nope, can't do it. God told me not to. I've got to go back home. This is what I've got to do. This is what God has commanded me to do. And then the old prophet does something. And he lies to this man of God. And he says, wait, I'm a prophet too. I'm a man of God too. And God has told me that it's okay for you to come to my house. It's okay for you to come and eat and drink and relax for a little bit in my home. As you see there in verse 18, as he makes this proclamation to this man of God, um, the very last sentence says, but he lied to him. So the old, old prophet knows that he hasn't received a word from God. He just wants an audience with this man, and so he lies to him to get him to come back to his home. In verse 19, we see that the man of God indeed does go back with him, and he eats his bread and he drinks his water uh, in his home. And so we see in this moment, he's been lied to, um, and he has chosen not to follow the word of the Lord. And our first reaction is just kind of like, ah, that doesn't seem very fair. It's not really his fault, is it? He was lied to. He really... Should we blame the old prophet here? Isn't, that, isn't he the real culprit in this story? As we go further along in the story, though, we see that this, it's not about the old prophet. It's about the man of God, and it's about the truth that he had received from God and, and him allowing another word to rise above that. Him allowing the word from another man to usurp the word of God. And we see what happens as he goes back to this man's home. What happens? They eat, they drink, and then God really does send the old prophet a message. And he says, tell this man of God, because he has come to your home, because he has ate your bread and he has drank your water, he will not be buried with his fathers. It was a kind of a sign of respect. It's kind of a sign of, of ritual that they would be buried in tombs uh, along um, with their ancestors and with their um, fathers. And God is saying he, he won't make it. He's not going to do that. Essentially what God is saying, he will not die an honorable death. In fact, he will die an early death. And we see that happening. As the man of God heads back home, he saddles up his donkey. A lion meets him on the road, and this lion kills him. And then the donkey... And the lion just stand there beside his body. And, and, and we could go further along and write this is, this is a sign to the old prophet that, that something had happened. And, and if you read further along, the old prophet comes and he uh, finds the body and the, the animals are still just standing there. And, and this is just a matter of guilt that the old prophet, we kind of read that he, he just deals with this guilt for the rest of his life of lying to this man of God. But the old prophet's not the key to the story here, the man of God is the key to the story. And, and so at first, as I said, our, our reaction is that's just it's not fair. He shouldn't be the one that's punished for this because the old prophet is the one that lied to him. The old prophet is the one that said he had a word from God, but he really didn't. But the reality is that, that it's important for us to see that that's just an excuse. You see, God has given a word straight to this man. God has told this man of God exactly what he is supposed to do. And no other word from any other person should have mattered to this man of God, to this prophet from Judah. It didn't matter what this old prophet said. It didn't matter what the king said. Right? God had told him, 
do not eat, do not drink, and do not come home the same way that you went. So even though this prophet lied to him, even though this prophet deceived him, he disobeyed what God had asked him to do, and he paid for it with his life. He disobeyed the truth of what he knew was right, and he paid for it with his life. The reality is that many times in our own lives, we know what the truth is, we know what we should be doing, but we let the world influence us, and we let it steer us in another direction. See, when it came down to it, eating a little bread and drinking a little water looked a little more enticing than taking the journey all the way home without anything to eat or drink. And I'm sure he justified it in his mind. It's a long way. I need a little refreshment. I need a little relaxing before I ride this donkey all the way back to Judah. Surely God won't be mad at me for that. How many times have we done that in our own lives? Well, surely if I just, yeah, just do this, this little white lie, really not that big of a deal, is it? God will forgive me. I'll be okay. And this is what this man of God is doing in this moment. I can, I can, it'll be okay. I can handle it. I know that's not what God told me to do, but, man, I really could use something to drink. I really could use a bite to eat. And so he lets the world deceive him. He lets the world steer him in another direction. And he goes to his home, and he gives in. And the reality is, this is the question we ask ourselves far too often. What's the big deal? Is our sin really that bad? Does it really matter to God that much? We know God's truth. So often we don't have the courage to walk in it. So we justify ourselves by asking this question. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? So what if I had a few too many drinks the other night? God still loves me. So what if the language that comes out of my mouth doesn't honor Christ? He'll forgive me. So what if I took a look at that website that I know I shouldn't be looking at? It'll be all right. It's not hurting anybody else. These are the types of things we do in our own hearts and in our own minds all the time. We know the truth. We know what God calls us to do. But we justify our sin. And it's true that God does still love us, and He forgives us. When we mess up, when we sin, when we fall, He still loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if we are in Christ. So don't hear me saying that, that, that it removes us from Him, that it breaks uh, our union with Him because it doesn't. He still loves us. He forgives us. But it hurts our relationship. It hurts our communion with Him. It hurts our fellowship with him. And there are consequences for our sin. And furthermore, we're called to be holy as our Lord is holy. We're called to not only know what God's truth is, but to actually walk in it. It's not enough for us to just have a bunch of knowledge. What are we doing with the knowledge? Are we walking in it? Are we living in it? Are we actually living out the word of God? The man of God knew what God had called him to do, but in the end, he didn't have the courage to walk in it. The reality is if we're going to stand out and stand up for the gospel in this culture that we talked about earlier with all the shortcomings that it has, we've got to stand on the truth of God's word. We have to. We've got to not only know it and proclaim it, but we've actually got to live it out in every sphere of our life, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our churches, Right, This is the safest environment for us to live out that truth, but the reality is even within our churches, sometimes it's still hard for us to live out the truth. 
because we're influenced and we're pressed upon by so many different things in our culture. But we've got to be people who stand firm in the truth of God. So what's that mean for us? How do we live in light of that directive? Well, number one thing it means is that we've got to know God's truth. We've got to be people of this book. See, God has not left himself a mystery to us. He has given us instructions. He has told us how to live. He's told us how to follow him, and he's given us everything we need to know of how to know him, walk with him, and enjoy fellowship with him. And so we know his truth. As much as our world wants to proclaim that there is no such thing as truth, we as Christians believe that Jesus is the truth. That he is the source of absolute truth in this life. And so if we want to walk in that truth, what does that mean? We need to know him, we need to walk with him, and we need to fellowship with him on a daily basis. As Christians, we all, we've got Bibles in our homes. Most of us probably have dusty ones on the shelf. If you look at most statistics, most Christians don't ever even pick up their Bibles. Most people who proclaim to follow Jesus leave those Bibles on the shelf. If we're going to walk in His truth, then we've got to know what He's asking us to walk in. And so we've got to be people of the Word. We need to know His Word. We need to read His Word. We need to pray for the courage to walk in his word. We've got to be so familiar with God's truth that we immediately recognize when something doesn't measure up. We want to be people who are able to discern what God says is true and what the world says is true, then we better know the truth. You think about people who study counterfeit money. They don't study all the different counterfeits that are out there, right? They study the one real thing. They study what our U.S. Treasury Department puts out there. This is what they say is a real $20 bill. And so those counterfeiters, the people who study that and who look for counterfeit money, they know the real $20 bill better than they know the thousand different counterfeits that are out there. And so when one thing looks wrong, they can recognize it because it doesn't match up to the real thing. So if we're going to be able to do that in our own lives with God's word, with God's truth, we don't need to know necessarily what all the culture is doing, right? We need to be in tune with those things and, and realize where our culture is headed. But more than anything, we need to know God's truth. We need to know God's word so that when something comes up and something presses against us, we're able to say, you know, that doesn't fit what Scripture says. That's not what God has told us to do. See, the man of God was able to do that for a couple of times, but eventually he just gave in. For a couple of times he was able to say, no, God, God said that's not what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to go home. And he even said it to the old prophet once, and then that's when the old prophet lied to him. He said, oh, okay, I'll do it. I'll give in. I'll go with you. So we've got to know his truth. We've got to know it, and we've got to have the courage to walk in it. The man of God showed us that it's not just enough to know it. We've got to walk in it. That's why, that's why we said we must identify what God says is true and choose to walk in it. It's the statement we made at the very beginning. Not only do we have to identify it, but we've got to choose to walk in it. A bunch of head knowledge really doesn't do us a whole lot of good at the end of the day if we're not applying it to our lives, if we're not living it out where God takes us. So we need to pray. We need to pray for the courage to walk in God's truth. We need to pray for boldness to live out his plan for our lives, strength to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Christ. 
Friends, when we do this, we'll stick out, we'll look different, we'll look weird. And we live in a world where Christians are going to continue to look more and more and more and more and more and more weird. You realize that, right? The closer you follow Christ in this country, in this world, the weirder you're going to look. The more different you're going to look. The more you're going to stand out. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. Be the weirdest people in the world when we actually follow Jesus. When we actually walk in the truth of God's word, we will look very different. But just as he promised, we will experience the joy of fellowship and relationship with him. That's the lie that the world tells us. That there's no joy in that. There's no happiness. There's no joy in following Jesus. That's a killjoy, right? That's the narrative of the world. You can't have fun being a Christian. There's no joy in that. There's no happiness in that. What does Jesus promise us? If you will abide in me, then my joy will be in you, and your joy will be full. Your joy will be full. That's what he promises us. I don't know about you, but I believe what Jesus promises. So I believe that the closer I get to him, the more and more I commune with him, the more and more I deepen that relationship with him, the more and more joy I'm going to experience. See, the world will tell us that obedience does not equal joy, but the Bible tells us that the more we are obedient to God's word, the more joy we will experience in Christ. So the more we stand out, the more joy will experience. But that's not easy. It wasn't easy for the man of God, and eventually he failed, right? It's not easy for us. We give in. We allow people to influence us because there are so many different competing um, influences going on in the world. So we've got to pray for the boldness. We've got to pray for the strength to live that out. We've got to pray for the courage to walk in God's truth because it's not going to be easy. And another thing this story provides for us is an incredible reminder of our need to repent of our need to repent and ask God for forgiveness in the many different areas where we don't follow his truth, where we don't measure up. I don't know what that is for you. I don't, you know, it's different in all of our lives. We've got to repent of all the areas of our lives where we haven't submitted to God. You know, we can look at this story and we can think that the punishment for this man was pretty harsh, right? He was deceived. He was lied to. And so he didn't follow God's truth, but did God really have to allow a lion to come and kill him? Seems pretty rough, seems pretty harsh. The reality is you see stories like this all throughout Scripture of God giving us examples like that. You think about Uzzah as they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and it's about to tip over, it's about to fall, and what does he do? He puts his hand on it. Goner. Strikes him dead. Wait a minute, he was just trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling. Well, God had said, don't touch the Ark. And he touched it, and he died. Just last week in Lebanon, we were going through the book of Acts, and we talked about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if you remember that story, right? They sell some land. They're a part of their early church. And this had become a practice. All the people of the early church have been selling their things, selling their homes, selling their land, and giving all the money, putting it in one big pool for this early church to live from. 
And so Ananias and Sapphira are part of the early church. They sell some land. But they decide they're going to be a little, uh, little greedy with what they made from the land. And so they deceive Peter and John. And they hold back a little bit of the money. And Peter goes to Ananias first and he says, Is this how much you sold the land for? Yeah, this is how much we sold the land for. Knowing that they had held some back. And the Spirit impresses upon Peter that they had held some back as well. And he asks Ananias, why are you deceiving the Holy Spirit? Why are you lying to us? And in that moment, Ananias drops dead. And they drag his body out of the church. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in, and Peter goes through the same line of questioning with her, and she lies as well and deceives them. And what happens? She drops dead right there in the church. And I guess they had a body-carrying crew. I don't know, but they just drug them right, right out of the church. And so we see stories like this over and over again. And, and in our mind, we think, man, that's harsh. But the reality is that that's what our sin deserves each and every time. What does Romans tell us the wages of sin is? Death. The wages of sin is death. So every time we fail to submit to God's truth, every time we justify our sin, in reality, we deserve the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira and Uzzah and the man of God. The wages of sin is death. It is the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God to us that that is not what we taste every time. We don't presume upon that grace. We don't take that grace for granted, but we allow that grace and that mercy to lead us to repentance. Say, I know I messed up. I want to live differently. I want to walk differently. I want to follow Christ more closely. See, it's easy for us to just say, yeah, God's gracious, and so I'll just continue to do whatever I want to do. That's not what he calls us to calls us to repentance, to return to Him, to fellowship with Him, and to walk back in what He calls us to do. Praise God for His grace and His mercy. And, and I pray that it would lead us to repentance, not to further sin, not to take advantage of the grace, but to repent and to follow Christ. Our lives should be spent identifying what God says is true and choosing to walk in it. Our culture, as we've talked about, will tell us that there's no joy to be found in that, but I believe with every fiber of my being that the most joy that we can have in this life is found in following Jesus. If we want a firm foundation to build our lives upon, if we want a truth to build our lives upon, then we better build our lives upon the only truth that actually does exist out there in this world, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not just my truth. It's not just your truth. It is the truth. It's what Jesus says about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, not a life. The way, the truth, and the life. That's who Jesus is. That's who we're called to follow. And he says, follow me, and you'll have my joy. You'll have my life. Because of what he's done for us on the cross, because he has reconciled a relationship that was broken between us and our Father, then we can't experience that grace. We can't experience that kindness. And, and we can turn back to him when we sin.
can draw closer to him. And, and as Clint said as we were worshiping, we have the power to say no because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. In our flesh, in our sin, it's all we know is sin. But because of Christ and his cross and him saving us, we can say no. And we can resist the temptation and we can walk in the truth of who God is and what he calls us to do. So we've got to identify God's truth. We've got to choose to walk in it and ask God for the courage to live that out in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for a story and a, and a warning and an encouragement. I think this story includes all of those things. A, a warning to be on guard against the influences of the culture, an encouragement to walk in your truth. God, I pray that for the people of Journey Hartsville this morning. That we would be a people as Christians in this county, in this area, Middle Tennessee, that will be known for standing out, that will be known for walking in your truth, that will be known for living out your word. That's going to require us to, to read our Bibles. It's going to require us to be in relationship with you, praying to you for courage, for boldness. May we do all of those things. May we abide in you, walk with you. So when the forces of this culture, the forces of this world press against us, we can press back saying, no, that's not what God has called me to. God, and we know each step of the way we're going to need your strength. We're going to need your help. We're weak. But through Christ, through Christ, what he has done, his death, burial, and resurrection, God, we know we are more than conquerors. So we thank you for that this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you, Evan, for bringing the word this morning. It's a very important message to unpack and a very unique perspective from the Old Testament to do that.